the moment of the end is always profound, isn't it? Whatever the end is coming as a part of, the last scene of a movie, or the last episode of a TV series, or the last chapter of the book, the end is always profound. The last words of someone's life, maybe, are among the most profound things sometimes. Famous last words are so well-known and often documented, reportedly said by various people, many of them well-known celebrities, perhaps, or historical figures. Here are a few of them for you. Reportedly said by Vespasian, who was a Roman emperor in the first century, in the year 79 A.D., Vespasian, who was a powerful military leader, who, in a sense, I guess, made mockery of the gods, because he knew, surely, as so many of the people did in that time, that the pantheon of gods was just a manipulating sort of idea. And upon his death, Vespasian, the emperor, reportedly said, Woe is me! I think I'm turning into a god. He didn't want to be a god, I suppose. Or Nostradamus, that 16th century predictor of anything and everything, Nostradamus was 63 years old when his health began to fail him, and he reportedly said one summer evening to his secretary, you will not find me alive at sunrise, and he was right. General John Sedgwick was a commander in the Union Army in the Civil War, and in 1864, he met his demise on the battlefield very shortly after saying these words, They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Famous last words. And then lastly, Pancho Villa, who was a a well-known Mexican revolutionary in the early 1900s. Pancho Villa had lived a life of almost Robin Hood-like stealing from the rich to give to the poor and was on the run. Finally, he was gunned down in his car, and as he lay, breathing his last breath, surrounded by his friends, he said to them, Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Can you imagine? I don't know what my last words are going to be, but help me out and tell them that I said something. Famous last words. Scripture offers last words too. And and these words of the book of Revelation are certainly among the most famous, the most intriguing, the most mysterious last words in all of history, but really there's nothing new here. In fact, without the Old Testament, John's capstone visual theological masterpiece could not have been produced because John draws from, or his vision rather draws from, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It draws from the Old Testament. It draws from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and most of the minor prophets. It draws itself out of the Old Testament and reframes all that has been said before. What it says is really not unique in Scripture, but how it says it is. The last book of the Bible is a feast of images. It's the gospel given in pictures that drive that gospel into your heart. You know, part of the joy of being a human being, I think, is, and really the obligation of being a human being, is to understand 
your storyline, to, to begin to comprehend where you fit in the scheme of history. Whether you're a Christian or not, you live your life in the midst of a story that's much bigger than your life. That's really not hard to see. I mean, you just have to reflect back on your parents and how your own life as it is now is very much shaped by decisions that your parents made years and years ago. Even your grandparents beyond them, your great-grandparents, and so the story goes. It's even shaped more immediately by your spouse if you're married and, and his or her family and the decisions that they made. Your life is a part of a much bigger picture. We were just seeing a, a newspaper article in the paper yesterday that, that mentioned the little detail in the context of what it was talking about, that of all the population in the world, only 5% live in the United States of America. Only 5 out of every 100 people in the world live in the United States of America. That just means that outside of the borders of our bubblish like country, there are all kinds of other cultures and stories that determine people's lives and their well-being and what they are all about. There are so many different strands woven around the world, but Scripture draws it all together in the narrative of redemptive history. You're a part of that story, a much bigger story than you can really even begin to fathom. The Bible is not an instruction manual for how to do better. It is rather the story of reality in which you live. And the book of Revelation takes it all and sums it up with the flourish of, well, color and action. And that's what Revelation does. It promises a blessing for those who who read it aloud. The early church would receive this letter and read it aloud to the congregation. It promises a blessing for those who hear it, for those who keep it, or, or those who take it to heart, who ponder it, who who take comfort in it and cherish it. It promises a blessing for those who believe it, who believe the picture that Revelation paints. It is not a list of commands to do. Rather, it is the portrayal of truth to which you must hold fast. And that truth is Jesus' statement to his disciples. You know these words. He said to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If anyone asks you, what's the book of Revelation about? You can simply quote Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Revelation is about. It's the capstone of Scripture. It's the finishing touch of the book. It's the last word of God's giving himself to his people. But it calls itself some other things that I think are helpful to us to understand and to know as we enter into studying this last book of the Bible. It calls itself a revelation. Surprise, right? You knew this one was coming. My friend, a pastor in another state, I think was very accurate when he explained that when Jesus calls this the revelation of Jesus Christ, or when John does, John is not giving a title to this new work. It's not entitled the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, it It is, but that's not the point of John saying that. Rather, John is giving the topic. This is what this is about. Jesus is certainly the source of the revelation that John receives. He receives it from him. But Jesus is also the subject of it. He's the the topic. 
Revelation is a visual summary of what Genesis to Jude is all about. Because all of Scripture goes in one direction. All of Scripture leads towards the story of redemption. All of Scripture points to the Messiah. And that Messiah, His victorious work of disposing the imposter and of calling His people to Himself, that Messiah is what is revealed in the pages of Revelation. It's a book that's intended to make things clear, actually. That's what John tells us here at the very beginning. That's what the word revelation means. It's a revealing. It's, it's a clearing of things, not a muddying of the waters. Although there's a lot of muddy water circulating around the book of Revelation, isn't there? G.K. Chesterton was that British literary giant 100 years ago, and, and this is what he said. About Revelation, he said, While John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. There's a lot of muddy water surrounding the book of Revelation, as Chesterton said. And there are various perspectives on how to understand this book. And just quickly, I'm not going to dwell on these things, but just for the sake of of putting them out there. There's the preterist view. That simply means that some who take that view in its most pure form believe that that much, if not most, or all of what Revelation reveals was fulfilled in the first century A.D. And then there's the historicist view, which believes that the elements of the book of Revelation are portrayals of chronological history that will unfold through the church throughout the ages, chronologically. That one's very difficult to follow, actually. And then there's the futurist view, just opposite of the preterist, that believes that much, if not all, probably really not all, but most of the book of Revelation is content that is to be fulfilled sometime in the future, far off in the distance, maybe not so far off, but sometime in the future, the futurist view. And then there's the idealist view, which believes that the the pictures that you see in Revelation portray spiritual principles, principles of spiritual war that unfold even repeatedly over the course of history and have been for hundreds of years. Now, one of those views, I think, is better than the others, but I think most of them have something good to contribute to the conversation. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point of this. I'm not even going to tell you which view I think is the best one because that's really not the point. I think it will become clear to you as we go through this book. Because the point of reading Revelation is not to become precise about theology, but rather it's to become captivated by Jesus. All the Bible reveals Jesus. And the last book is not new in doing that, but it does it in such a way as to jar you awake to see Jesus for who he is. John gives us some sense of that in verse 5. He He points to the fact that Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who takes the witness stand, as it were, to testify to the truth that God has presented in the world. He's the firstborn of the dead. Now, don't miss the irony of that one, because the irony is very thick. The firstborn of the dead. The world doesn't believe that death can be undone. It just doesn't make any sense. But the book of Revelation is about the undoing of death. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's also the ruler of kings on earth. 
Now, men have always loved power. Always, from the day of the fall in the garden, men have loved power. But power, since the fall, is too big for men to handle. You heard some of that in that strange reading from the prophet Daniel moments ago, from Daniel chapter 7. This odd vision that Daniel saw of four beasts rising up from the sea and, and then the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Daniel is seeing a vision of, of worldly power expressing itself through kingdoms and yet there's only one who can really wield the power that rules the world. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. You know, if you've been around Christian circles, if you've been around the church, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you already know these things about Jesus. They're not new. But John wants us to see the same Jesus in a new light. Another commentator uh, said this about the book of Revelation. He said, What God has in store for His last unveiling is a word of a different sort. It's an acted word, a word dramatized, painted, and set to music. It's a word that you can see and feel and taste. In fact, he said, it is a sacrament. Now, maybe that goes a bit far, but he says it's a sacrament. In other words, God gives us the water of baptism and the bread and the wine of communion in order to help us to understand in order to clarify for us and to simplify the mysteries of how he works. That's what a sacrament is. Revelation, in a sense, is such a thing. It's a revealing, a clarifying, even a simplifying. So this book is a revelation. It also, though, is a vision. In verse 2, John is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, throughout Scripture, you you may remember this, throughout Scripture, the prophets are are keen on this, but the rest of Scripture is too. The words of God presenting Himself to His people are, hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Use your ears to receive it. But in Revelation, that changes. The language becomes See the word of the Lord. See it. And the transition is immediate. In chapter 1, a few verses later, John hears a voice, but that voice that he hears says, John, write what you see in a book. And then John turned to see. And throughout the rest of the book, you ought to take a read of it yourself and see in the weeks to come. Read it and see how John turns and sees. He says again and again, then I saw this, then I saw that. And John is writing what he sees. It is a vision. The visual imagery of Revelation is is just completely overwhelming. And of all Scripture, I think, this book really should speak to our day, shouldn't it? Because we're such a visual society. That's just how our culture has developed. We're a visual society. We're visual people. We want images in front of us. But I would caution us to think that the visuals of Revelation are a different and more complicated sort of thing. 
we've accustomed ourselves very much to the lazy digital images of computer games, of, of online digital video games and such. And we want imagery that simply just comes before us repetitively. If you notice a video game, it's just the same thing over and over and over again in some form or fashion. We want the lazy digital imagery of our world, but Revelation is more complicated than that. It's very visual, but it's the visuals of a different sort. I would suggest that, that those have an advantage, actually, in understanding Revelation among us who are inclined to love to read C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, or J.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. I mean, indulge me for a moment, but I think this is true. Because in their works, Lewis creates Narnia, a place where time stands still and animals speak. Now, many rational Americans see that and they think, well, that's just kind of silly. That's fairy tale children's stuff. Animals don't speak. We all know that. And so we discount that. And... J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings presents a, a, a picture of a world where evil is really, truly evil. It's dark and nasty. And where the most unlikely character carries the heaviest load. Those are things that just don't really make sense in our culture, in our digital world. But these are narrative creations with imagery that lead you to something much bigger. And I would suggest that as you prepare yourself to receive John's revelation of Jesus, maybe go back and watch the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe go back and read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and prepare yourself to see such things that just don't fit in your normal world. Because Revelation is a world where animals speak. It's a world where dragons threaten and where the dead come to life. It's a world where strange beasts rise up out of the sea. It's a world where the weak carry the heaviest load. It's a place of the completely unexpected. It's a place where numbers do not have numeric value, but they have great symbolic value. The number seven is a very dominant pattern throughout the book of Revelation. You just have to be prepared for that. Maybe you know that already. Uh, seven is, is the number of, in Scripture of, of perfection, of completeness. It's a number that very much represents something. Maybe that's why we think of it as lucky number seven. I don't know. But throughout the book of Revelation, there are seven churches and seven spirits. There are seven seals and seven trumpets. There are seven bowls. And some would suggest that the bigger picture of the, of the story of Revelation is that it unfolds over the course of seven scenes that make up the content of the book. But in Revelation, seven plus seven does not equal 14. That's not the point. We think so linearly that we expect that to be, but it's just not. Much misunderstanding comes about this book from forcing a linear understanding on the book of Revelation. Now, I like linear thinking. I like for one thing to lead to another. I like for 1 plus 1 to equal 2. I like for 7 plus 7 to equal 14. I like for things to be consistent and predictable, but Revelation is not linear. Sometimes um, Mary and I, in our conversation together, have, you know, like any couple, we have to try to figure out how to connect. And sometimes her way of being is 
to just begin to speak and to, to tell me things. And I'll be standing there waiting. You know, she knows this. I'll be standing there waiting for her to get to, from point A to point B. And she'll, she'll say, well, I'm just thinking out loud. And she'll go on and, and talk. And I, I stand and wait patiently and listen. Some of you relate to this. I want from point A to go to point B. I'm, I'm too linear. But the world is not necessarily linear. Revelation takes you beyond linear. I want to read a quote to you from Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor and a, a commentator who wrote about this very thing in a book of his. And this is what he says. He says, Some people, when God is the subject, become extremely cautious, qualifying every statement and defining every term. They attempt to say no more than can be verified in logic. They do not want to be found guilty of talking nonsense. Now, you hear the linear thinking there? I don't want anything that's nonsense. I want it all to make sense. He goes on. Other people, when God is the subject, knowing how easily we drift into pious fantasies, become excessively practical. They turn every truth about God into a moral precept. You hear the linear thinking? This is what we do. We read part of the Bible, and we want for it now to say to me, Here's what you now need to do. We're linear. But revelation is not. He goes on. But poets like John are extravagant and bold, scorning both the caution of the religious philosopher and the earnestness of the ethical moralist. The Apostle John is a poet using words to intensify our relationship with God. He's not trying to get us to think more accurately or to train us into better behavior. Now, we have a hard time digesting that because we want to think accurately and we want to behave better. That's not what Revelation is after. But rather, John is trying to get us to believe more recklessly, to behave more playfully. The faith recklessness and hope, hope playfulness of children entering into the kingdom of God. He will jar us out of our lethargy, Get us to live on the alert. Open our eyes to the burning bush and the fiery chariots. He will open our ears to the hard steel promises and commands of Christ. He will banish boredom from the gospel, lift up our heads, and enlarge our hearts. That's what a vision does for you. And this book is a vision. John sees something, and what he has seen, he has now to show to you. Revelation is a vision. It's also, though, inevitably a prophecy. We know that. John starts out saying that this vision he has is to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And when we hear those words, we immediately think prophecy, don't we? Because that's what we associate with prophecy, things that are yet to take place. This must be a prophecy. But even more directly in verse 3, he writes, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. He's just going to call a spade a spade. This is a prophecy and receive it as such. But prophecy to us, well, I think probably to you, I know to me, sounds scary. It sounds like something that should be scary. And, and for me, it might be because of a scar that I have from my junior high days. I can remember I was about 12 years old. I think it was about 1980 or so, maybe 79, when... HBO first showed up on the scene. Home box office. Before that, what I knew as a kid was television in the form of three or four channels, and that's just what you had with no remote control. 
In about 1980, HBO showed up on the scene, cable television. It was a new thing, believe it or not, for you younger ones. It was a brand new thing. And to me and my buddy next door, the marvel of HBO was that we would actually be able to watch movies on TV in our own house. Scandalous. Believe it or not, that was new then. However, sadly for HBO, one of the first movies that they showed was a movie called Prophecy. Maybe some of you older ones like me remember this terrible movie. It was a a low-budget film about a logging company in the Pacific Northwest who released nasty chemicals into the rivers and all kinds of environmental havoc resulted, the worst of which was a nasty beast who rose out of the river. Basically, it was a giant deformed bear that walked on two feet and wreaked havoc in the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, seeing this movie, oh my goodness, if this is what HBO is about, I don't want anything to do with it. This is terrible. It scarred me for life. I I think of prophecy as a giant deformed bear walking on two feet. (laughs) But oddly enough, Daniel actually gives some of that imagery too, doesn't he? And John does here as well, but we often assume that prophecy is simply the prediction of the future, especially some frightening thing. But in a biblical sense, prophecy is much more than that. The future is just part of the idea, and it's not always the main part. I mean, after all, what is a prophet? In the Westminster Confession of Faith, our theological standards, we think of Jesus as holding three offices in Scripture, and it's very easy to show in Scripture He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. The king was one who ruled God's people with justice and mercy and humility. David and Solomon and and many other kings did that, though not really all that well, perhaps. And the priest is one who stands between God and the people. He represents the people before God. He represents God to the people. The priest would do those things. Aaron and the Levites did this for Israel. And the prophet was the one who did what? He brought God's word to God's people. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, hordes of prophets who brought God's word to God's people. But the prophets not only were about the business of foretelling, that is, what is yet to come, but they also were about the business of forth-telling. Calling forth what God has already said to His people, which He requires of them now, today, immediately. But Christians miss this. We forget that. And so if John saw things that must soon take place in the book of Revelation, we then assume that maybe the Bible is wrong about this. Or we think that maybe the Bible just defines soon in a way that an aspiring politician or a defensive one might define it if he was protecting himself from some scandal. But that's not what soon is. And that's not what prophecy is either. Patrick Fairburn was a a Scottish theologian. Years ago, he wrote about prophecy this way. He said, the prophetic writings themselves give no countenance to the notion that the gift of prophecy, prophecy was conferred merely for the purpose of announcing beforehand the coming events of providence. In other words, what he meant was, prophecy's purpose is not just to help us know the future. 
Its purpose is also to help us understand now. Now. And Jesus gives us that in his self-introduction here in these words. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. First of all, he presents himself as, as the A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega, the framework of reality. And everything that exists fits in between who he is. You can't compartmentalize Jesus and just place him in a corner. He is the A to Z. He is, he is reality. And the narrative story that Revelation presents of Jesus is the narrative story in which you exist. But not only that, he says... I'm the one who is and who was and who is yet to come. I'm the past, I'm the present, and I'm the future, he says. In other words, we already live in the last days. You know that? The last days are not some days off in the future. The last days are now and the last days have been here for a very long time. There are just a lot more of those last days than we might have assumed. We need to properly understand what prophecy is. It's, it's the word of God for the people of God. Now, is Revelation prophetic of future events? Yes, absolutely it is, for sure. But is it misleading us by saying that these things must soon take place? No. And we know that because it's not just a prophecy. It's also a letter. It's a letter. Verse 4, John gives the traditional introduction, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. This is a letter. That's the introduction to a letter to his friends. John had spent some years among the churches of Asia Minor, I think particularly Ephesus. And a letter from John would have circulated among them. He, He sent this letter to his friends And he wrote it to the seven churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and so on. You can read the list in your own Bible. These are churches that struggled to exist in a very antagonistic world of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and the Mediterranean world. A very antagonistic world, a very difficult place to be a Christian in the first couple of centuries of the world. And that's much harder for us to understand now. We, just, we really have a hard time compre- comprehending, I think, how difficult it was to be a Christian publicly, even secretly, in this world. Now, Vespasian was an, a Roman emperor. I quoted from him earlier his last words, Woe is me, I think I'm becoming a god, right? Vespasian was a Roman emperor who became emperor by means of a military coup in about the year 69 A.D. And in order for him to go to Rome to assume the role of emperor, he had to leave a military campaign that he was currently engaged in in the hands of his son to finish it. And that campaign was the siege of Jerusalem. In the year 69 A.D. or so, Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, called upon Vespasian, a, a, a competent military leader, to, to crush the Jewish rebellion that was happening in the first century. And Vespasian took his, his uh, military straight to Jerusalem and was sieging Jerusalem to crush Jerusalem, which they eventually would, 
In the year 70 A.D., Vespasian had to leave that siege to return to Rome to assume the role of emperor. That's the world that Christians were living in. Now, the Jews at the time were allowed to pay a tax to avoid emperor worship. Christians had it a little harder because they weren't just claiming a religion. They were claiming a new king, a king other than the Roman emperor. And so it was much harder for them. They needed a letter from a friend. And they got a great one. Verse 4, grace to you, friends, and peace from him who is and who was and who is yet to come. The emperor of Rome offered no grace and no peace to Christians. But the eternal and divine emperor of all creation had not forgotten his people. He still loved them. Still he had freed them from their sins by his blood. And he wrote a letter to them. But, you know, there weren't just seven churches at the time. John wrote this letter to seven churches in Asia Minor, but there were lots more churches, Galatia and Antioch and Jerusalem, even Rome at the time. There were churches around the Mediterranean world. But remember, the number seven is symbolic. It's the perfect number. It's reflective of the rest of the book of Revelation. John is writing this letter to all the churches, and not just the churches of the first century world, but to the church around the world throughout the centuries, even to this church, because all of the church through all the ages lives life in the middle. That is, in between the perfect beginning of creation and the perfect ending of the new heavens and the new earth. We live life in between those things, and life in the middle, as you well know, is full of pain and frustration and guilt. Even if we medicate ourselves with the material comforts of this world, which we do, still we know the pain and frustration and the the guilt of our own lives. Still, our self-medication doesn't change the fact that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, as Isaiah tells us. So John wants every liver of life in the middle to know that he is coming, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. I told you some weeks ago that I was reading this summer, along with one of our kids, a historical novel, historical fiction, a book called The Robe. Fascinating story, I highly recommend it. The storyline is basically about a, a, a Roman centurion in about the year 30 A.D., who finds himself commanding a legion of of soldiers who are given the task of the death sentence of crucifying this Galilean man, Jesus, in Jerusalem. And he leads this legion to do that. The rest of the story is his gradual progression of coming to understand who this man, Jesus, really was and even coming to faith. At one point, he meets the Apostle Peter. Again, it's, it's historical fiction, but he meets the Apostle Peter. They go out and sit on the hill where Jesus was crucified a couple of years prior. And Peter expresses his own anguish. He says to this Roman centurion, I disown my Lord, and I live with that pain and regret for all of my life. And the Roman centurion replies to him and says, I killed that man. I pierced him. I put him to death. Later on, this Roman centurion finds himself standing before the Roman emperor Caligula, who is no friend to Christians. And Caligula is insisting on his testimony to what he believes. 
And he explains to him, even though I killed this man, I believe that he's the coming king. And Caligula says to him, you must now recant and renounce this Jesus you call king. Will you do it? And here are the words of this centurion. He says, Your majesty, if the empire desires peace and justice and goodwill among all men, then my king, Jesus, will be on your side. But if the empire desires to pursue the slavery and slaughter that have brought agony and terror and despair to the world, if there is then no hope for men but chains and hunger at the hands of our empire, my king will march forward to right this wrong. Not tomorrow, sire. Your majesty may not be so fortunate as to witness the establishment of this kingdom, but it is coming. And the emperor says to him, well then, is that the last of it? Is that your word? And the centurion says, it is. And off he goes to his death sentence to meet the archers on the field. That's what this letter is sent to encourage. To to raise up and lift the hearts of those who face life in the middle. To face life in the midst of the fall. And that's what the book of Revelation portrays and shows you. The the chains and the hunger, the slavery and the slaughter that bring agony and fear into the world, and yet to testify to the coming kingdom that will reign in the end. The last book of the Bible is many things. It is a revelation to show clarity. It's a vision to show reality. It's a prophecy to show immediacy. And it's a letter to show mercy. And above all, it's the unveiling of Jesus in pictures. One last brief quote. Vern Poitras is a a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary. And he explains how people misunderstand the book of Revelation because they think it's a puzzle book to be figured out when actually it's a picture book to be taken in. And he says this, Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with specific and isolated details. Rather, become engrossed with the overall story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. And long for the final victory. This book promises to be a blessing. It promises to be a blessing to the one who reads it. It promises to be a blessing to the one who hears it. And it assures you of its blessing for the one who holds it and believes it. May it be so for you and for me, even today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.